Hello. The Walk Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024 and they have evolved. We're now celebrating strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regions. It's our biggest award show yet. The great news is you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix announced during Cannes Lions Week. And what hasn't changed is that all our entries will be rigorously judged and consistently benchmarked against the creative effectiveness ladder. So if you win a Global Walk Grand Prix, you can truly claim your campaign is one of the most effective in the world. I'm John Bazell, Walk's Awards Lead, and I'm here to encourage you to head straight to walk.com, download your entry pack, and send us your work by the early bird deadline on 12th of December to get the lowest fee. After that, fees double until the final deadline on the 6th of February. The Walk Awards 2024, Strategic Brilliance, Effective Impact, is the award show you've been waiting for. Hello everyone, Rika Facundo here, APAC editor at WARC. I've just come back from a full-on and exciting week at South by Southwest Sydney, the first time the festival from Austin has landed in the APAC region. So of course, we had to be there covering it as an exclusive partner of the WPP House. I always say that it's a privilege to attend a festival like South by Southwest. For one week, we're in this little bubble where we celebrate creativity, but... Unfortunately, at the end of the day, we have to go back to our day job in the real world where there's a lot of pressure and uncertainty. That's why WARC did a series of behind-the-scenes interviews with various senior stakeholders, focusing on the theme of why we should invest in creativity and the lessons we can take back from South by Southwest so that we can continue to fight for it in the boardroom, as well as cultivate it with our team, the very people who are championing this every day. So I talk to a lot a lot of people, and I need help to unpack some of those conversations. So I brought on two fantastic ladies from WPP with me, Rhodes Herzeg, President, WPP Australia and New Zealand, and Katie Riggsmith, Chief Strategy Officer at WPP Australia and New Zealand. Hello, both. How's it going? It's wonderful. How are you? Good. Have you rested at all since the, the, the festival just a few days ago? No, personally, I haven't, but um, I'm, I'm looking forward to some reflection time in the next week or so. Rose, yourself? No rest at all, Rika. Uh, Katie and I just pretty much worked the entire weekend. Well, you and me both, but it's okay. We're having this fun conversation on creativity. We can rest after this podcast is over, yeah? Yes. All right. So, uh, so like I mentioned, the theme of this podcast is about investing in creativity. And when we are picking the theme, there's actually quite a bit of tension in the theme in itself and the name. Creativity alludes to possibilities, but investment involves time, money, and resources, basically a cost. And as we all know, everyone's feeling the squeeze right now, shrinking marketing budgets, uncertain economic climate. So to start off, I want to kind of flip the question on its head. And I want to ask, what is the risk of not investing in creativity? Maybe for this, we start with Rose. The risk, Rika, is that your business dies. That's the risk. The risk is that if you don't invest in creativity, you may not have a business a year or two years from now. So this isn't about a lovely thing to invest in. It's the imperative lever for any business to grow. Funnily enough, someone I interviewed actually said something similar that it was a lot existential, like every business, every category is facing an existential crisis. Katie, do you want to add to the existential conundrum or 
do you have another risk of not investing in creativity? Well, no, I think it's what Rose says. It's a growth impediment. You know, we know that growth comes from creativity and you need to invest in that creativity in order to grow your business. And when you're facing really hard times, it can be really easy to want to shy away from that. But actually all of the proof, all of the research suggests that if you double down, if you invest in creativity, invest in your brand, you will come out in a much better place. As Rose, you mentioned, you know, it's business imperative or else your business will die. And therefore you need to take some unconventional routes to creativity to make that impact. And I want to share a great case study that I heard from Pete Renderia, Director of Global Innovation at Treasury Premium Brands. And he talked about this partnership with Snoop Dogg with nine, with 19 crimes, and it was super fascinating. So I'm going to play it out and then I want to hear what your thoughts are afterwards. Our partnership with Snoop Dogg, for example, when we touched on a little bit earlier, we, we, um, uh, that, that took a lot of convincing of many, many senior stakeholders. Um, that was a tough uh, conversation to have for, for all sorts of reasons that you can imagine. Uh, but we chose to, to, to back it and, and back it in a big way. And it became the biggest innovation ever in the US wine category. And one thing that's really remarkable, setting, going back to some of our sort of key existential challenges as a business, is after the first year, we did some research uh, in the US and discovered that 40% of the people who bought our Snoop Cali Red wine had never bought 19 crimes before. 20% of those people had never drunk wine before. So we're in, in a world where we're trying to essentially open up wine to more people on more occasions, here is a vehicle that was, was somewhat edgy and had some challenges attached to it, but we backed it and backed it big and we've seen the re rewards of that. I got to ask because I would love to hear anyone pitched idea of Snoop Dogg collaborating with him to, you know, senior stakeholders. What are your thoughts of how to help marketers, you know, kind of pitch those ideas and why those unconventional ideas is business critical? So, Rose, I'm going to get to you on this one. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken a lot to Pete about the 19 Crimes case study. We're pretty proud of the work that we do with them through Wonderman Thompson. But the truth is that unconventional thinking makes you money. If we had gone down the road of all the other wine brands, we would never have grown the category or got 20% of the drinkers of that brand to be brand new to the category. To get new consumers to come, to come into your category, you have to wow them. You've got to be unconventional in your thinking. And in order to do that kind of thing, which is 20% of people that are drinking wine have never, ever drunk it before, how else would you get them? except to be unconventional. And the last person that you would think would necessarily be an ambassador for wine is Snoop. So Snoop plus 19 crimes equals 20% of people who have never, ever drunk a drop of wine before. That's incredible. So the next question and the next interview I want to share is from David um, Dahan, Managing Director at WPP at Unilever. Let's hear from what David had to say. I think we need to reframe the narrative that creativity is not a cost. It is, uh, it has, it's a value. And I think the, the problem is that often, and that extends to actually what, how C-suite tend to see marketing in general, is that they see it as a cost and that cost needs to provide a return. And rather than using the notion of value, what value does marketing and what value does creativity bring to my business? 
I'm going to stay with you, Katie, on this one. If I could just use Snoop Dogg as the vehicle to talk about creativity as an unofficial part of this podcast. So using Snoop Dogg collaboration and that partnership, what kind of value does that kind of unconventional thinking bring to the business that, you know, that they couldn't do in any other way if they use any other kind of facet or if they were just really focused on cost? What would have been the missed opportunity there? Well, I think there would have been a missed opportunity in um, longevity of an idea. If you were driving down costs, then you'd look at sales, you'd look at, you know, buy one, get one free. You'd look at all of these other ways, other business metrics to pull that lever and to make immediate um, return. But that doesn't have longevity of your brand and it doesn't create loyalty and it doesn't create brand equity. Um, so I think that it's really important that they've focused on that. They've also understood the power of partnership in creativity and how you can leverage and, and borrow credibility from other people. And these, you know, we're seeing more and more of these interesting collabs between brand and celebrity or influencers or brands with other brands all of that helps to unlock different types of creativity and cut through and add value in a different way and so I think those things are really important when we're trying to drive value of creativity. I'm going to stay with you a little bit Katie because even when I was thinking about the title of this podcast or when I was interviewing people the brief was let's think about creativity in the broadest sense you know of course there's a brand um, etc. That's part of that. But because we were in a festival of innovation, it felt right to talk about creativity in its broadest sense. So how important is that? Is that a new way of thinking about creativity, especially for the advertising industry? Absolutely. I think it's um, a new way of measuring it. I think that as agencies have evolved, um, we have more forms of creativity in agencies. We do more things for clients. There's creativity in commerce solutions. There's creativity in how you're bringing data science to life. There's, there's so much creativity in what we do and being able to isolate the type of creativity and then put a metric or a value on that type of creativity is really important and I think hugely interesting and something that I'm really proud of us taking a stab at this and, and, and moving it forward. When I spoke to to Gavin Gibson, managing partner at Mindshare, there was something that he said that I thought was quite interesting, which is this idea of the growth mindset and how important it is to keep the growth mindset when you're talking about when you're in budget setting season, when you're talking about the future of the business of you know your agencies. So for you, Rose, maybe this question is for you. What is the growth mindset look like or mean to you at that C-suite level? And how do you bring that growth mindset back, you know, when you're talking to your CFO or whoever else who's just so focused on cost, very narrow-minded, how do you kind of bring them back to the value of everything that we've talked about? Well, there's two ways you can grow a business. You can take a machete to your costs or you can grow sales. That's the truth. Now, you can send in a bunch of um, economists to take out those costs, um, like our consulting friends often do, or you can recognise that you need to be in a growth mindset because everybody is going to come at you and try to take away your market share. And so you need to feel that you can be innovative, creative, inspirational, gutsy, that's a word I use a lot, in order to keep growing because if you're not growing or moving forward, you're actually rolling backwards. And a CFO needs to recognize that it's much easier to grow both the top line and the bottom line of a business than it is to simply remove costs. Once you're starting to remove costs, things are tricky. 
it's much easier to keep growing market share, keep growing audiences, keep going, keep growing customer base. These are the kinds of things that we want our clients to think about. And the CFO will have a much better time of it with their board if they are delivering those kinds of growth numbers rather than slashing and burning the cost base. And so that is the kind of mindset that we often talk to our clients about, especially CFOs when we get them in the room. I want to touch on something you said, Rose. You mentioned budgets, and everyone thinks about budgets all the time. And in an ideal world, we all want all the budget in the world, right? But sometimes, you know, less budgets can be seen as an impediment to creativity. You want all the money to put it everywhere and collaborate with Snoop Dogg (laughs) and whatnot. But I want to, again, flip that because the reality is we are always going to be constrained by by our budgets. So how can less budgets encourage us to be more creative? And I want to share an answer from Michelle Martini's head of marketing from National Australia Bank about some of the things that she went through. And I'd love to hear your thoughts afterwards. Perhaps a change in our budget scenarios, whatever that might be, and for all I know, our budgets could be increased. But it gives us an opportunity to not keep doing the things that we've always done to get what we've always got. Start to think about how could we do things differently? What could we trial, test, learn and scale? I want to ask Rose to respond to this because you're talking about these existential um, crises um, earlier. What do you think about Michelle, what Michelle said? I love what Michelle said because you don't need money to make an idea. You need an imagination. And I say this as somebody who's spent the bulk of their career self-employed in small business. It isn't money that makes an idea extraordinary. It's imagination, it's guts, it's guile, it's inspiration, it's the ability to be fearless. Fearlessness plus imagination usually equals a great idea and then you have whatever money you have and you make that work for you. So I don't believe that it's about money. I think it's about the way you let people loose on an idea and you just let them go to town and see what they're capable of. In my experience, though, when we have those kinds of groundbreaking ideas, strangely enough, clients find extra budget. So I've oftentimes sat in a meeting where they have loved the idea so much that miraculously they have another two or $3 million. So I actually think we need to forget about the budget in the beginning and we need to think about the quality of the idea because the money comes oftentimes when the ideas are amazing. The next question or the follow-up I want Kate to respond to because, you know, you have your strategist hat. I can imagine usually when you're maybe doing the, the planning brief and you're always like, okay, how much budget does the client have? And then you think about what you can do. Um, how much does the budget influence this strategic process? It's funny you say that it doesn't. And that's that's the ironic thing with strategy. And yes, it does impact it when you get down to the point of how will this live and breathe in channels or how much production can we put behind it? And you start to sense check the idea. But from a strategic point of view, you can get a brief for 300K and you can get a brief for 10, 15 million dollars. The strategic process is still the same. You still have to understand people, you have to understand the business objective, who you're reaching, a really, really powerful insight about them. You have to find a way to creatively engage with them. All of that happens without any knowledge of the budget as far as I'm concerned because the thinking to everything Rose says requires imagination and that that is not something that you have to put a price tag on. We um, Imagination is the thing and then how it lands later, you'll figure that out. But absolutely to begin with, the budget's irrelevant. And I have always found that 
Even when you have less money, when your back is against a wall, it's crazy how creative and imaginative and awesome people can come with up with ideas. In fact, sometimes the bigger the budget, the the more um, safe the thinking can be because it's kind of we've done this before, let's keep doing it, whereas you have less money and you've got to fight fierce and hustle for something different. Budgets, the ultimate constraint that breeds creativity. I think everyone can resonate <laughs> with, with that. So I have one last question about the investment of creativity and acknowledging the value that we have. Normally, when we talk about impact, it's very much on the businesses and the brands that we work on, right? But the AANA launched a report at the WPP House that said that advertising pays. And it said that one of the underlooked benefits of advertising is how it contributes to the economy. So I'm going to share a clip from AANA CEO Josh Folks sharing more about the findings. Yeah, look, I think that the results are really, really encouraging. We're talking about, you know, the two biggest drivers or the biggest issues that we're talking about at the moment are growth and bringing down prices because of cost of living pressures. And that's the power of advertising. It, it drives growth through the business community. It drives growth um, in businesses, in, sorry, in the government as well. And through competition and innovation, it brings down prices. So uh, those two big drivers that everyone seems to be talking about at the moment um, really gets – advertising has a really big role to play in that, and that really came out in the report. So Rose and Katie, in this fight for creativity and advertising, how is acknowledging some of these external benefits to the industry and the ecosystem and the supply chain an important piece of evidence for agencies? I'll start with Rose on this one. Well, we – contribute $53 billion in GDP to our economy, and that all comes from the advertising industry. It's an incredible contribution. We employ hundreds of thousands of people. We give consumers choice. We allow them to make sure that they are getting the best price possible because all of the brands are fighting for their customers. In the end, we are the great bastion of a cornerstone of a great economy because we give people the information they need to choose the products and services they need. But ultimately, our contribution in terms of GDP at 53 billion is enormous. Something that David Dahan, Managing Director at WPP Unilever, said really st stuck to me when I was talking about measurement and impact. We have a whole slew of brand metrics already, and he kind of gave this provocation that we should create a confidence index and see how that correlates to creativity. I want to see what you guys think about that. Is that the next brief? Will WPP come up with a confidence index? Rose, she's smiling at me. Look, I think confidence is so much about your tone of voice and how you feel about yourself, whether you're a brand, a company, or an individual. You can't live in this world if you don't believe in yourself. And if you don't have confidence, you can't believe in yourself, whether you're a brand, a company, or an individual. And so I think it's an incredibly important point that, that David makes because in the end, so much of what we are doing is either showing up as companies that are confident of the products they sell and they're proud to stand behind them or giving them services that make people feel better about themselves. So in the end, no confidence, no game. And I think it's a lovely thing, and I think we probably should think about a confidence index, but I kind of like the thought, Rika. You heard it here first, folks. Rose uh, will make it happen. We're talking about political will, right? Rose, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. So the next thing I want to talk about is what usually gives marketers confidence is measurement, you know, and it's really important to make sure that the work that we do is effective and has a very important part to play. But 
in what ways could measurement potentially be a crutch to creativity and how do we overcome this? And I bring this up because when I spoke to Gavin Gibson, managing partner at Mindshare, again, someone who's very much in the depths of metrics and whatnot. So I was quite surprised that he said this, but let me share what he said. And then um, I'm going to bring the question to Kate afterwards. Those measurement models quite often look at the past. So it's reflective of what's already happened in the past, doesn't necessarily constitute, therefore, bigger ideas and thinking moving forward. Hence why the the test and learn agenda and the real bravery for me comes from um, uh, being clear, yes, the foundations, but what about those new thinking and new ideas that may not uh, define themselves in the model? So, Katie, if the models can only take us so far, what's the limit of that and what's on the other side? Well, I think that there's a slightly different thing to unpack between measurement and the models in terms of what we're actually trying to achieve. So where you were saying that, you know, could the measurement be a crux to creativity? I don't believe it can and should be because at the end of the day, we're using our creativity to solve a business problem for a client. And we need to understand what the number one, you know, what the objectives are for that client, how they are going to measure that and how it's going to be proven to be a success to drive growth for their business. That is what our creativity needs to answer. So if our creativity isn't answering that, then it's not the right thing for the client. So measurement for me is very clear. We need to know what it is we're measuring, and then we find a solution to actually measuring it. The, The where it gets a bit murky is when you finish something and then it's like you're measured against a different objective. And this wasn't deemed to be successful because it didn't do X. And that's when you need to hold the fort and go, but it wasn't meant to do X. It was meant to do Y. And that was agreed. Um, And then I agree with what Gav's saying in terms of the test and learn agenda and making sure that if you are trying something new, that there might be hesitation around it, then yes, a a great way of couching that is test and learn. Um, But again, it all comes down to me, what client objectives you need to achieve, how you're going to measure that success. I'm going to return to the idea of test and learn a little bit later, but I want to throw another provocation I heard from my interview with Toby Talbot from Ogilvy. And he said, do we need a return on creativity? And he was trying to challenge the whole ROI model. And he said that it's so linear, it's a ratio. Should be thinking about return on creativity because it really allows you to face into the business challenge a lot more. So Rose, do we need a return on creativity measure in there? And what do you, do you agree with that? Is it complicating things? I think, look, I think we all know when creativity delivers. I think we do. We have so many metrics already. I'm not a fan of creating too many. I totally love Toby Talbot. He's a terrific chief creative officer for Ogilvy. His point is really about making sure that creativity is measured in such a way that it's valued for the true delivery of what it brings to the table. And as a CCO, as any chief creative officer should, should know, when boardroom decisions are made by CEOs and CFOs and chairmen and chairwomen of boards, what they need to be looking at is the value that creativity delivers in driving sales, in driving prosperity, in driving, in driving metrics that make their brands and goods and services popular. And I think what Toby is saying is that oftentimes people forget that the most creative work drives all of those things, but it often gets forgotten. It gets forgotten. People somehow think that the thing that drives a sale is the distribution model or the price, all of which play a role, but without an idea that captures the imagination of its customer base or the soul of its audience, all of that stuff is for naught because there's so much competition right now that the variable has to be creativity. I think that's probably where Toby Talbot was 
was coming. And I think he makes an incredibly important point about people treating creativity with the same respect they would treat any other input in business. I totally agree and love what you said, Rose. Again, Wark has a lot of those studies about how creativity is the amplifier, right? When all things are equal, creativity is the one that makes the difference. But today, there are just so many different ways to express your creativity. There's so many different channels, tactics, etc. And this is where I want to bring in that test and learn mindset that Gavin and uh, Katie, you are touching on and bring it back to the theme of this podcast, which is investment, right? And when budgets are tight, you don't really want to waste your, your money and your resources, but we have to test and learn. So how do we reframe the value of test and learn? Katie? Well, I think at first, I know this is going to be the most obvious thing to say, but I'd say it to all the clients as well. I'm like, what are you trying to test and what are you trying to learn? You know, it's so funny how often we throw around the, we're going to do a test and learn. And then you break it down and go, but but what exactly are you testing? Is it how many consumers you can get with this? Is it a new channel? Is it a um, dynamic piece of creative? What are you testing? And what are you actually seeking to learn from it? Because where are you going to apply that learning? And do you need to learn from this? Or could you actually take a risk and double down on it without a test? So these are the conversations that we have at the beginning, because there is massive value in doing test and learn. But if you have those conversations and agree that all up front, people won't feel like it's a waste of resource as you go through the process. I mean, with anything, right, being really clear about what you're doing up front and something I heard a lot from my interviewees when it talks about test and learn is that don't get lost in the technology, figure out what you're using it to learn. So, you know, for example, if you're testing new audiences that you're not really sure of, how do you test and learn um, in a particular space or how you can potentially deliver a better user experience as well? And I also think it's incumbent on us to understand the hypothesis of what we're trying to learn. The learning isn't going to smack you over the head. When you try something new, that the, the data is not going to suddenly, what we have to be saying is we think people are going to respond in this way to what, like it's, it's proving out a hypothesis rather than just here, tell us something interesting that's going to come out of spending this money. Another factor I want to throw in which I don't think a lot of people are talking about, they're starting to, is this idea of regulation, right? Regulation is being experienced in all facets of the industry and with sustainability uh, in the context of my conversation with Sam Evans, head of digital marketing and e-commerce at Modus Beer, where we were talking about regulation in data and AI and whatnot. And again, regulation sometimes feel like such a scary thing, like, okay, it's going to put... Um, a barrier between you and your ability to go far. But let me share what he said, and I want to get your thoughts about it afterwards. We have to follow those. Those are guidelines and rails that we use to ensure that we're safe, that we're able to market to the correct audiences, that our creativity doesn't stretch beyond the audience that we're supposed to be marketing to. So it's really not a scary thing. It's more like people see that limitation of creativity as scary. Um, I look at it more as like a safety net. It's like, well, how far can we go in creativity uh, without you know, harming people, without hurting people? And those regulatory bodies are there to help guide us through that. When you're thinking about an idea, are you thinking about that ethical aspect as much? And should we be talking about it a lot more? Katie? Absolutely. I think we all have to have a moral compass. And, it, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And that's also, you know, the regulation is there to protect all of us, but it 
shouldn't get to a point where you're pushing to the regulation. We should be able to find ways to be creative and engaging and inspiring without breaking rules that are going to offend, hurt or harm people. So I think for us, um, and I'm going to quote Dr. Simon Longstaff, who said it, it's more of the, the AI discussion where he said, there's a difference between accountability and responsibility. Responsibility is there when no one's looking. And it is, it's a responsibility of all of us to do things, communicate in ways that, um, like I said, are engaging and inciting and inspiring that, that don't push a boundary that is unnecessarily needing to be pushed. So I spoke to Severin Volion, Global VP at Lux, and about the behind the scenes thought process of their Smash the Label campaign in China. Let me play what she had to say and similarly love to hear your thoughts on it. I think if someone had come to me with the Smash the Labels idea without us having done the work, understanding those consumers, hearing them tell their stories about how they felt about it, maybe the business wouldn't have jumped at the idea of showing a brand smashing vases and <laughs> things like that. I think because we had that deep nuance understanding, we felt, no, we've heard those stories. We know how this resonates with consumers. Let's, let's go ahead and, and do that. So I think you need to do your groundwork. You need to be prepared for potential backlash, but I think you also need to uh, put a stick in the ground and, and go for it. So I have one follow-up here, which is that we all know we should do the work, invest the time and resources, but you know we're all time poor. But is that an excuse? I mean, what can we do to maximize the time and resources that we have to really invest in those kind of research and being with the communities that Severine was talking about, uh, Katie? Well, I mean, that's incumbent on the strategist and the team coming up with the ideas to do that anyway. But I think what Sev's talking about from a client point of view is them also going on the journey. And that's where I think it's it's our job to prime them at the right time. You know, I think we sometimes can miss time when we're trying to get a big idea across the line. And um, we talked about this a little bit, Rickery, now in, in the report we did recently, but I, I really do think it's about the priming. And if you prime them in a way that helps direct the kind of information you're going to be sharing with them, that gives them some time to find out that information themselves and go on that journey. But you can't expect that to happen in a one-hour meeting that you suddenly spring on them. I want to shift the conversation to the last thing, which is democratizing creativity across the organization. Katie, you already hinted at this earlier where creativity can mean so many different things to so many different um, people, but it's really important in order to break those barriers. And we talked a lot about the relationship between the CMO and CFO, but there was one session at the WPP house that talked about the relationship with the chief people officer. And why is that important? So let's hear from David Redhill, ex-CMO of Deloitte, about that. It it really intrigues me that uh, we're still uh, largely stuck in the old idea that uh, executives have their lanes that they need to stay within, that that creativity is the preserve of the marketing leader and that that all people issues uh, need to be handled by the chief talent or chief people officer. And in fact, the most effective executive teams are, are those in which across the suite, they're all playing to their strengths, they're all uh, helping each other, you know, uh, because, you know, the delivery of a 
a powerful marketing message um, is equally dependent upon a great people strategy as much as a great technology strategy or distribution strategy or operations strategy. And Rose, I want to give this question to you because you lead an organization with a lot of talent and without great talent, you won't, might not be able to do the work. So talk to, talk to me about that, that relationship. And do you think we need to think about that a lot more in our delivery of creative effectiveness? Rika, if people don't trust one another, good luck getting amazing work. Good luck. You need to trust the people that you work with. You need to talk to the people that you work with. You need to have faith in the people that you work with. You need to get to know the people that you work with. There is some beautiful alchemy that comes from people that just like one another and they want to sit down and have a meal, break bread, talk about creativity, talk about how they can make a client's business blossom. That doesn't happen by accident and it absolutely never happens when people don't have a genuinely warm relationship with one another. The role of chief people officers is to find the right talent, put those pieces of talent together like a jigsaw puzzle and give them the opportunity to shine and to rub off on one another in a really great way. In my experience as president of roughly 3,000 people across Australia and New Zealand, the businesses that talk to one another a lot, all the CPOs and the the chief marketing officers from the client side, from our side, when people genuinely know and talk to one another, great things happen. Inversely, in every experience where we have failed or I've seen a client's business fail, it's because the C-suite just didn't like each other and don't get on. I think we often forget about the human element of what we do. And I share this because there is an answer from Steve Connors um, from Volvo When I asked him how we create a culture where creativity can thrive and be effective, to be honest, I was half expecting him to say, just send everyone for training, you know, the the training budget and whatnot. But his answer surprised me. Let me share what he said. If the people within your business are having fun and you can measure that fun element, right, it doesn't matter what the language is as long as they're having fun because they learn, they grow and they produce better results. I'm really simplifying, obviously, what we do. But, you know, um, coming back to some of these projects, some of these projects were not only to get our our brand out there, but also to get fun within the business. So this talent, right, making the decision was the easy part. The delivery of that part is when you get the talent coming together. They actually bond. They love what they're doing. Right, All the acronyms doesn't matter because they're loving it, they really enjoy it, and they're focused on delivering a great result and success. And that really is the measurement of success. It's the fun element that comes from delivering great results. Fun, is that something that you think about when you're creating that culture of, of effectiveness and you know, training people to remember all the acronyms and whatnot? Rose? Yes, absolutely. We talk about fun and we also talk about joy. If you're not loving what you're doing, get out find another job, get another career. I very much enjoy time that I spend with Katie Riggs-Smith. We are thinkers. (laughs) We get together. We have a lot of fun. We laugh a lot. And let me tell you, we We are having crazy days that are very long. It's it's 11 o'clock Sydney time right now. We're on a call with you and I've got more work to do and so does Katie. But because I still love it and I still find joy and I can still laugh my head off, with Katie, because I enjoy her so much, the work will be infinitely better for our clients. And I think if you don't have that, you're in real trouble, real trouble in 2023. 
I hope you have as much fun, Katie. Do you have as much fun with Rose? I definitely do, although I laugh too loud and too often. But I think to Rose's point as well, there's a shorthand language as well. When you genuinely adore and enjoy someone you're working with, that you can get to the point quicker, you can get to solutions more quickly, um, and there is a joy and lightness that comes with it. And I think as well, working with Volvo, having worked with them closely, I can say everything Steve says from his business point of view is true. The way that they collaborate with the agencies and bring that joy and and fun to not just them, but to the agency relationship is really important as well. And I think, you know, one last point to it is that, and I know Rose is a big fan of this, is how do we continue to unlock that, that fun in a post-COVID world? You know, we lost our way a little bit as a whole, like, the human race and we were all at home and how do you bring those moments of joy back into the workplace back into moments together because we we can laugh over teams and we can have a good time but that does that's not never going to replace being in a room together and coming up with ideas and feeling the energy bouncing off the walls maybe it's just me bouncing off the walls usually but you feel it And the other thing I'll add, Rika, and Katie and I talk about this a lot, when you love what you do and you think it's fun and if you think the work isn't very good, you can have a very honest conversation very quickly about the fact that the work needs to be better. With all of the leaders we have at WPP, all our creative leaders, when I don't like something, I can say to them, guys, this isn't good enough, not good enough. We need to go back to the drawing board. We need to start again. We veered off brief. We can do better than this. This is not groundbreaking work, but you can't have a conversation like that if you don't know the person really well and you haven't bonded over really fun moments. It's very difficult to have that kind of conversation. And we don't just have that because we want people to have a happy-go-lucky time. We want them to love what they do and have fun because there are times when you have to have hard conversations. It's very difficult when you don't know somebody. And I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you both for joining me tonight. I know it's late for you in unpacking all the insights from South by Southwest. I'm pretty sure this is not the last time we're going to be talking about this. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We do have some work coverage on South by Southwest. Do check it out. Otherwise, thanks for joining me.